Think with me for just a moment about one of your favorite scenes in one of your favorite stories. Some of those scenes, I'm sure, involve redemption or coming redemption in the midst of a dark and dire situation. A moment where the lead character sees the truth of happily ever after in the distance. And that image propels him or her forward in hope and in confidence. One of the greatest scenes and one of the greatest stories of all time is found in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy. And if you're unfamiliar with the storyline, here's a flyover synopsis, the cliff notes from 45,000 feet. The Lord of the Rings is just a story, a journey about a pilgrimage. A journey that starts in a place called the Shire, the home of the hobbits. And there's one hobbit, Frodo, who's given a task to take an all-powerful ring to Mordor and to destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. The story is filled with drama and adventure and great challenges and great joys as Frodo and his band of brothers, his fellowship, march from the Shire to Mordor. It's a scene after scene after scene. We see that drama unfold. But there's one scene in particular that is sorrowful, but it's so joy-filled. A scene about the hope of a better day and a better place in the midst of challenging circumstances. And it's a scene between where there's a conversation, an exchange between one of the hobbits and Gandalf, a wizard. And the hobbit says to Gandalf, You'll have to wait until the end of the sermon to hear that quote. That quote that you'll hear then thematically runs alongside the text and really the whole message of 1 Peter this morning. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the book of 1 Peter. This morning we are returning to our occasional sermon series in this letter. And Lord willing, we're actually going to finish the letter today. We're going to finish our pilgrimage through 1 Peter. So we'll be walking through chapter 5, verses 5 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under a seat near you. You'll find 1 Peter on page 953. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. This is God's faithful and good and confidence-giving word. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends her greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. All glory be to God. Let's say that together. All glory be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to to know and see the truth of your word this morning. Lord, may we not be just informed by your word, but may we be transformed by it. May we be fully renewed. And Lord, we ask together that we would behold the risen and exalted Christ this morning from and through your word. And Lord, strengthen your weak servant now to proclaim your word. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray. Amen. Well, before we walk through these final verses this morning, let's reorient ourselves to the, to the letter just for a moment. In chapters 1 through 4, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has encouraged pilgrim exiles, spiritual sojourners, in Asia Minor and abroad, Christians of yesterday and Christians of today, to walk heavenward with a living, new, and enduring hope. And in this letter thus far, Peter has bolstered the church and encouraged the church as he has called us to remember who we are in Christ. Ransomed, redeemed people, covered in the blood of the Lamb. Ones that are being built up. Spiritual stones, living stones being built up into the house of God. This is who we are in Christ. Peter's also reminded us of what we have in Christ, an imperishable, unfading inheritance that is waiting in heaven. And he has called us to know how we are to live in Christ, holy, new, honorable, and faithful lives before a watching world. And at the top of chapter 5, Peter zoomed in and encouraged pastors, shepherds of God's people, to imitate Jesus, the good and faithful shepherd. And he encouraged pastors to shepherd with grace and gentleness and humility. And here in chapter 5, verse 5 and following, Peter slowly zooms out and addresses the whole church made up of Christians gathered in local churches there in Asia Minor and scattered throughout the world. And in summary, here's the main point 
of this closing part of the letter. Here's the main point. God provides all things for his people on their pilgrimage to their heavenly home. God provides all things for his people on their pilgrimage to their heavenly home. He provides clothes for the pilgrimage. We see this in in verses five through seven. He provides confidence for the pilgrimage. We see this in verses eight through 11. And he provides companionship for the pilgrimage. We see this in verses 12 through 14. So let's dive in. Point one, clothes for the pilgrimage. Let's read once again verses five through seven, and this will be my longest point this morning. First Peter chapter five, five through seven. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. On the tail end of a flight, the captain will come over the loudspeakers and say something like this. We're going to be landing shortly. Wrap up what you're doing. Put your tray table up. Stewardess, prepare the cabin. The landing gear eventually goes down, and the descent is underway. And here, Peter is preparing us for the landing of his letter. The descent has begun, and he is making his final appeals and his final encouragements to the church. And he says, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5, Peter was speaking directly to elders, not not those who are older in age, long-standing members of the church. Not simply that. He was also addressing those who are pastors and shepherds, and he calls them elders, elders who are pastors and shepherds. And so here, I believe in this verse, that Peter addresses the younger here. When he does so, he is speaking to those who are not younger in age, but just members, non-elders of the church. Those subject to good and faithful elder pastors. So tying this to the previous verse, the previous four verses there in chapter five, God is saying here to the church, respect and honor and care for your pastors. But then... Peter presses in. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. To be humble is to recognize that God is God and we are not. And then walk in that truth. On our pilgrimage heavenward, God tells us to clothe ourselves with humility. In this letter, Peter has encouraged us as a coach, as a friend, as a pastor. He's even put his builder cap on back in chapter 2. And now he speaks to us as a spiritual tailor. He tells us to put on the clothes of humility, which means that we don't naturally have the clothes of humility on. None of us go outside our homes unclothed, right? At least we shouldn't. 
We start each day getting dressed. Not only dressed physically, but we ought to get dressed spiritually with humility. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. This is also quoted in James chapter 4. And Peter and James are echoing the words of Christ here in Matthew 20, where Jesus says, The great must become a servant. The first shall be last. This is what humility looks like. God opposes the prideful. If you think that sounds harsh, it's because it is. It's because it is. God literally opposes. He has his face against the proud. When I was in seminary years ago, I was being discipled by a long-standing elder in our church. Brother's name is John. And one evening while we were talking, I told him that I, would, I believed that I was ready to be a pastor. I was like, I don't know, first year of seminary. He asked, well, why do you think, why do you think that? I said, well, I'm listening to the other pastors in my seminary classes, and I I think I could, I could do that. I could do that. Fundamentally, I believe I had something better to say and that I could do their job better. I was gently but firmly rebuked. Got a dose of humility that day. Because my words were not coming from a humble heart They were coming from a prideful heart. And so it is here where we should should all take stock. We should all ask ourselves, am I a humble person? Am I a humble person? Would friends, family members, or your spouse say that you are humble? In the context of this section, speaking to the relationship between the church and pastors, are you able to be led? Are you easily pastored? We should ask, am I teachable? Am I clothed in humility and grace? Beloved, there's no room for pride in our lives. There's no room for pride in the church. And we must kill pride or it will be killing us. We ought to pray for God to break the pride within us, to break us open so that we may be filled, filled with his grace and with his goodness and with his gentleness. Peter's Peter's not done though. He says, verse 6, he presses in even harder, humble yourselves, therefore into the mighty hand of God. He calls us once again to humble ourselves and to live under the sovereign and mighty and caring hand of God. In a world obsessed with personal freedoms, both inside and outside the church, these words are a bit of a shock. Wait, I got I to gotta live under something? I got to be under the hand of God? But here, Peter's calling us to live under the hand of God in all circumstances and not to struggle under that hand. I remember growing up, I rode dirt bikes and I was foolishly riding ahead from all my friends, fifth gear pinned, which means I was going as fast as I possibly could across this dirt road on the outskirts of Bakersfield, California. And I hit a sand pit at full speed. I immediately laid the bike over on my leg. 
It was bad. It was bad. And I, I couldn't get the bike up off my leg. And instead of waiting for my friends to come and to help get the bike off my leg, I like frantically tried to pull my leg from out underneath the bike and my pant slid up and I burnt a huge hole in my calf on the exhaust pipe. If I had just waited patiently under the bike for a moment, my friends would have come, would have helped me, and I wouldn't have been <laughs> you know, limping away from this accident. My leg would have been, would have been fine. We are to rest under and not struggle under the mighty hand of God. Uh, my favorite of the Puritans, John Flavel, uh, wrote this regarding this ideal, this idea. By fretting and discontent, you do yourself more injury than all your afflictions could do. Your own discontent is that which arms your troubles with a sting. You make your burden heavy by struggling under it. Do you but lie quietly under the hand of God, your condition would be much more easy than it is. Flavel was a wise man. Here, Flavel and Peter, they're both calling us to humble contentment under the mighty hand of God, humility that looks to God and waits upon God and rests in God. What does this look like? Well, in our text, here's what it looks like. We are to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Our pastoral assistant, Zach Kispert, preached on anxiety from this passage last January. It would do you well to go back and listen or re-listen to that sermon. Be edified. But in our hearts, in our heart of hearts, we must admit that resting under the hand of God, coming under the hand of God, is one of the hardest part, if not the hardest part, of the Christian life. For control freaks like us, it's hard to rest under his mighty hand. It's hard to cast our anxieties upon him when the financial, political, and social spectrum around us is crumbling. It's hard to cast our anxieties upon him as we watch our parents grow old and struggle. It's hard to cast our anxieties upon him when we lose a parent as I just did and your days are filled with grief and sorrow. And you face the anxiety of living life with a new normal. It's hard to cast our anxieties upon him and rest in him in the midst of family struggles, family strife. With children or extended family members, it's hard to rest under God's hand and cast our anxieties upon him when we lose a child or in the midst of chronic illness or cancer or sickness. It's hard to rest under his mighty hand. In this season, in these seasons, it's often far easier for us to cast our anxieties on others or to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps But here's the truth, beloved. Here's the truth. The best place to be is under the mighty, caring, and good hand of God. 
And there's no better place to cast our anxieties than upon him who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Peter has exhorted the church here to humble ourselves under the caring and mighty hand of God by casting our anxieties upon him. For when we do this, we'll be exalted. That's what he says. For this leads to exaltation. That's what he says at the close of verse 6. Following a typical pattern within this letter, Peter holds out for us exaltation on the last day. Peter assures us that the humble will be exalted. Within the pages of Scripture, we see a paradox, don't we? A pattern. And it's this. It's the pattern of humility. The way up is the way down. The valley of vision, the first prayer, that's what it speaks of. Help me to learn by paradox that the way up is the way down. The path of humility leads to glory. And this path, as we see in Scripture, is well-worn, isn't it? It's the path that so many have walked before us, including Jacob and Joseph and David and Job. And who ultimately walked the path? who ultimately walked that path of humility before glory. Jesus. Jesus did this. We heard this earlier in Philippians chapter 2 that Zach read. From the cradle to the cross, Christ's life was marked by humility. But it was a humiliation, a, a humility that gave way to exaltation. Christ is our model and our motivator for us to do the same. For Jesus embodied the truth that the way up is the way down. He embodied humility. He humbly exchanged a robe of splendor for a robe of frail humanity. He humbly knelt before his disciples' feet and washed them when they should have been kneeling and bowing before him. He humbly walked the path of humiliation as he carried his cross to Golgotha. He was humbled even unto death for the sake of sinners like you and I, but, but death didn't have the final word. For three days later, after he was crucified, he was resurrected. And then shortly thereafter, he was ascended. He ascended into heaven and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father. And so if you're here this morning, and you do not know this Jesus, if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're tired of putting on the pride of life every day, if you're here this morning and you're, you're tired of being, well, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired and don't have a place to cast your anxieties, if you're here this morning and you've had enough, oh, friend, Christ is for you. For where our sinful life ends. A humble life in Christ begins. All we must do is repent of our sin and believe on Christ for salvation. And like that, we are made his. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you more about Jesus. Christian, make no mistake, on our pilgrimage heavenward, 
God has provided all things for us through Christ. And he has, catch this, catch, catch this, provided the clothes of Christ's humility for us. And has given us his spirit to enable us to put it on daily. This is not something that we could do on our own. It requires the spirit. It is above our pay grade. We need the Holy Spirit's work in this. But God has provided both the means and the ends, and he has provided the clothes of humility for us. He has provided Christ for us. All praise to him. But Peter doesn't stop there. He, he presses on. He also shows how, how God has provided confidence for the pilgrimage, confidence for us. One of the most dangerous roads in the world is Bolivia's North Yungas Road. You guys familiar with this road? It is two lanes. It's 12 feet wide. No guardrail. It's primarily unpaved, often covered in fog. The road sits up a mountainside four to 15,000 feet off the, off the ground. It's been nicknamed the death road because it takes two to 300 lives a year. That's a dangerous road. And travelers on it must be ready for anything. Must be careful, watchful as they're traveling it. They must resist all distractions must firmly focus. But beloved, the pilgrimage to heaven is even more narrow and more dangerous. That road to heaven is more narrow and more dangerous than this road, this earthly road in Bolivia. Peter knows this. And so the Spirit, through the hand of Peter, wants us as the church to know, to know this. So he writes verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. That's there, verses 8, all the way through verse 11. Oftentimes throughout this letter, Peter has called us as the church to be watchful, to be prepared, to not be caught unprepared. And so he encourages us, he warns us, to be watchful on the road to eternal glory. Peter knew well from his own life and walk with Christ that there are pitfalls and that there are landslides and that there are distractions and that there are adversaries and enemies along the road heavenward. And he knows that our greatest enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. We so often go throughout our days, I don't think, I'm just not really considering this. I think we often go throughout our days not considering the spiritual warfare 
that's going on around us that we have an adversary who is seeking to devour us. An enemy that is seeking to get a foothold in our soul to pull us off the road. Paul warns us of this in Ephesians 6 when he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beloved, Satan will stop at nothing to distract us. He uses our own sin, our idols that build us up only to watch us Humpty Dumpty. He uses our careers and our goals, our families. He even twists and refashions good gifts from God in order to sabotage us. He uses persecution and suffering. Now, if you're, I want us to hear this. If you're chosen in Christ, you'll never be lost. You'll never be lost. But Satan desires to use us, to abuse us, and then kill us. And so Peter is saying here, we need to live with a wartime mentality. We must resist Satan and stand firm in our faith. So how do we do this? How do we remain firm? Well, we need to daily clothe ourselves with humility, right, as we've seen in the text. We need to be in the word. We need to be in discipleship with one another, regularly extending those same warnings as we just read here in the text. We need to be comforted also by this truth in verse 9 that other Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world are fighting the same good fight alongside us. Peter is calling us to remain firm in the faith and to remain firm in the hope of Christ, the one who is the greater lion of Judah from Revelation chapter 5, the one, is who, the one who is our, our friend and our savior and our protector. Well, Peter presses even further in and he says, after you have suffered for a little while, when he writes this, he's not talking about a season of suffering. He's talking about really the suffering of, of living as a Christian every day, be it in small, small ways that seem insignificant but are actually quite significant, or in large ways. He's speaking of the whole early, earthly life of a Christian. You know, this momentary life is full of affliction and suffering and death, isn't it? But these do not have the final word. Praise God. For as we read there in the last few verses there. Let's read those once again together. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Aren't those words fantastic? I mean, does it get any better than those words? Does it get any better than these words? This is how Peter fights his battles. And this is how Peter encourages the church to fight our battles. With this truth, we rely, we are to rely on our big God of grace, the one who has called us to his eternal glory in and through Christ. He is our confidence. See, this life of momentary affliction is nothing compared to the weight of eternal glory. And though this life is hard and it is weighter, weighty, Christ is grander and weightier than our earthly struggles. And he himself, as it says in verse 10, 
will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. He does this now in the present. He does this now, and he will do so on the last day, that eternal and unchanging and unending day of glory. In these verses, Peter wants us to see today in light of that day, in order that we might stand firm and be established in the hope and grace of Christ. Amen? And so may this rich truth lead us, just as it does Peter, to doxology, to praise, to Christ be dominion forever and ever. Amen? I love that. It's like Peter can't, can't control himself. He's like, I got I to gotta exalt Christ. I got I to gotta praise him. Let's do this. Well, God provides all things for his people on their pilgrimage to their heavenly home. He provides clothes of humility and righteousness of Christ for our pilgrimage. He, he gives us the confidence. He provides the confidence of Christ and that truth of that eternal glory that awaits the church. And he also provides companionship for the journey. So that takes us to point three, companionship for the pilgrimage. Please look with me there at verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In ancient times, in AD 62-63, where I believe that this letter was penned, they didn't have a postal service like they do here in the West. It took time, energy, multiple people to get a letter from one place to another. This means that someone had to travel near or far in order to deliver First Peter. And we find here that Peter's Paul Revere was a faithful brother by the name of Silvanus or Silvanus or Silas, as some of your translations may say. Same person. This is the same faithful brother mentioned in Acts 15, 2 Corinthians 1, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This man was a faithful companion to Peter in spreading the gospel to the end of the earth. See, Peter himself had his own fellowship. He had his own band of brothers and sisters, and that included Silas. And, as verse 13 says, she who is at Babylon, who was chosen, also sends her greetings. Who is the she? Well, this language echoes 2 John chapter 1, verse 1, where we read of John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the elect lady and her children. Who is the she of Peter? Who is the elect lady in 1 John? It's the church. It's the church. And here in this final greeting, we see that it's the church in Babylon, which according to early Christianity, Babylon was codenamed for Rome. So, it's the church, the chosen ones in Rome. 
We also see there in verse 13 that Mark, Peter's son, is also a part of his fellowship of the gospel. And we know this from church history, that this is not referring to, the, to a blood son of Peter, but this is a spiritual son, a companion in the gospel. And so why does, why does Peter like, just name drop at the end of his letter? Why, why does he do this? Have you ever asked that question? I asked that question. Why, why, why all the names? What's going on here? Peter desires that the church know that they are not alone in the faith, just as he was not alone in the faith. He wanted the church in Asia Minor and the church of today to know and to rest that they are not the only ones fighting the good fight. They're not the only ones trying to clothe themselves in humility day by day. They're not the only ones with confidence in Christ. They're not the only ones trying to make it through suffering and persecution with hope. Well, at the heart of this closing, we find the core, the nucleus of Peter's message here in this letter. It's this, verse 12, we read, I, Peter, have written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this, all he has written in the letter, all of it, is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Here God is making plain his aim through Peter. He is saying, church, now that you know who you are, now that you know what you have, and now that you know where you're going, now that you know how to live in Christ, in the midst of all circumstances in this life, stand firm in the grace of God. Stand firm. He's saying, know that you're not alone. Know that you're chosen. That there are other chosen elect people, believers throughout the world who are fighting the same battle that you are and pursuing the same hope that you are. See, the Christian faith is not a lone ranger faith. It's never been. The Christian faith is a corporate, a communal faith. God saves people into a people. And he gives the world his local church where those people gather for worship like we have this morning. And it is through the church made up of elect pilgrims that God gives gospel companionship on our pilgrimage to our heavenly home. He has given us one another for the journey. Companionship that, that really is at the heart of soul of our life together. Companionship that sticks together in the midst of seasons of suffering, in the midst of need, or in the midst of plenty. And I've seen this in the life of the church. I've seen this in the way that that you all have come alongside the Mordhorst family and the Peterson family and the Lees and the Jeffleys and the Lundines, be it in the midst of, of pain or loss or hospital stays. I've seen it in the way that you've come alongside our family as we grieve our loss. I've seen this in the way that men, a handful of Saturdays ago, gathered to help another woman in the church move from one house to another, giving up their Saturday to serve another. I've seen this in the way our deacons and deaconesses come alongside the church, meeting the practical needs of the church. And I've seen this in the myriad of ways I've watched families come alongside other families and point them to hope in Christ.
It's so sweet to see. So sweet to see. See, we need companionship to strengthen one another when we're weak. We need companionship to walk with one another when we're sick and tired and can't go on. We need companionship to greet one another here with a holy kiss, with the kiss of love, as First Peter says. In other words, to love one another, forgive one another, be hospitable and welcoming and kind to one another, to be there for one another. And he has given us companionship, gospel companionship, to extend peace, just as Peter extends us peace here, peace here at the end of this letter. We're to extend that same peace to one another. God has provided companionship for the journey home. All praise to him. We are not alone. Well, we should bring our our time to a close. We should bring this letter to a close. From the first sentence of 1 Peter to the very last, Peter wrote to encourage the church to take heart and to have hope and to stand firm in the midst of all circumstances. And Peter has really encouraged pilgrim exiles, us, to have hope in Christ today by holding out to us a foretaste of heaven. I pray that you've noticed that as we've gone through this letter over the last handful of months. Peter's regularly pointing us to that future day. In almost every section of the letter, from chapter 1, where Peter encourages us with the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that awaits us in heaven, to these verses where he's just spoken of the eternal glory in Christ that awaits us. The spirit through the hand of Peter has caused us in every chapter to stand on the edge of glory. Stand on the edge of the glory of Christ and in his heavenly realm. And he has done this so that we may have hope for today and bright hope for tomorrow on our pilgrimage heavenward. J.R.R. Tolkien understood that road. He understood it. He understood that we need hope in the midst of life and death. And he captured this well in this exchange between the hobbit Pippin and the wise wizard Gandalf during the siege of Gondor. Here's the exchange. I didn't think it would end this way, said Pippin. End? No. The journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we must all take. The gray rain curtain of this world is rolled back, all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. What? Gandalf, see what? said Pippin. White shores. And beyond a far green country, under a swift sunrise. Well, that isn't so bad, said Pippin. No, it isn't, said Gandalf. In one of the darkest moments in Pippin's life, Gandalf held out to him the glory and hope of a better day. And Peter has done the same for us in this letter. He's held out the hope and glory of a better day and to live today in light of that day. For upon the backdrop of sin and suffering and death and loss shines brightly the hope of Christ and the glory that awaits us. And so, beloved, may we stand firm in the faith. 
in the name of Christ and in his glory with our eyes fixed on that final day when faith gives way to sight and the hope of today gives way to the eternal hope of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May it transform us. May we walk in light of Christ's work on our behalf. May we delight in that work and may we extend that work of grace and peace to one another as we walk together as pilgrims, hopeful pilgrims in this life. We thank you for your word. Amen.